morning, got a treat. Uh, Pastor Chris is out of town this week. He is on a Cub Scout uh, camp, and uh, I know we all wish we were there with him, right? Um, but he's there serving and loving on his kids and loving on other kids. We've got Pastor Eddie here, uh, Louisiana brother, coming from up here to speak to us. So uh, y'all give Pastor Eddie a hand, and uh, you're going to be blessed this morning, all right? Blessings. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Let me open us with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, bless the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not a fan of golf. Okay? But, but, but I am a huge fan of spending time with people, which means that I sometimes find myself on a golf course. Uh, most recently, I was on a golf course with one of my neighbors uh, about a month and a half ago. And this particular neighbor was actually a really good golfer. And so he watched me swing a couple of times, and then he came up to me and he says, you're doing it all wrong. Uh, and he, I needed to make some changes. But the changes that I needed to make were simple changes. It was move your hand just a, just a little here and move this foot back a couple of, you know, half an inch. And uh, it didn't happen the first time or the second time, but eventually I made a swing and it made a little ping and the ball went three times further than it's ever went before. And I learned something that day about golf, but also about life in general. And that is that the fundamentals are really important. When you get the fundamentals right, the game can be a whole lot more fun. And, and that's true if you're playing golf or swinging a baseball bat or uh, shooting skeet or baking a cake. You see, if you know the fundamentals of what it takes to bake a good cake, and you're a good chef, you can change some things around, add a little bit here, take a little bit away here, and you can make a masterpiece. But you can't put 20 eggs in the cake. You'll just end up with an omelet. <laughs> Which got me to wondering, what is it, what is it that is fundamental about the Christian faith? What is it that is the most important thing. And as I started looking around in scriptures, I came across the answer, and as you might expect with a question that's that broad, what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? The answer is found throughout scripture. It's found in multiple places in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But I want us to key in this morning on Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and I want us to look at verse 28. And what I'd like for us to do today is spend some time looking at a passage what's, that for many of us is a familiar passage. And even if this passage isn't familiar, the concept is familiar because, like I said, it, this, it occurs all over Scripture. Are y'all hearing some feedback? Is, there, is it just me up here? Am I doing something wrong with the mic? Okay, we'll just keep going. Kind of, anyway. Uh, I want to look at this passage. 
maybe point some things out to you, and then look at a couple of ways that we can apply it. Now, Pastor Chris has been preaching his way through the book of Acts. And uh, we've kind of got a context for what's going on in Acts, but we're jumping in right into the middle of the book of Mark. And so what I want to do for you very briefly before we jump into a specific passage is kind of give you some context for where we're at. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, verse 28. And it's in this passage that Jesus is in the temple, but he's been in the temple for a little while. And people... Jews have been coming up to him trying to trap him. And, and it's by no mistake that they've been doing that. Uh, two Jewish political parties got together. The Herodians, which would have been uh, the liberals of Jesus' days, had gotten together with the Pharisees, which would have been the conservatives of Jesus' day. And they, they said, listen, we want to trap Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask him a trick question, and if he gives a conservative answer, you, the liberals will fillet him. And if he gives a, a, a liberal answer, the conservatives will fillet him. And what better question to get conservatives and liberals disagreeing with each other over than a tax question? And so they ask him about a tax question. They come up to Jesus and say, look, should we be paying taxes to Rome? Yes or no? Knowing good and well, if he says yes, one side's got him. If he says no, the other side's got him. Jesus is a master question answerer. And he doesn't say yes or no. Instead, he says, tell me. Whose face is on the money? Oh, Caesar? You better give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He could drop the mic at that point. They're floored. And he doesn't do it once. There's another question that comes. And, 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 and it's another impossible question that's specifically designed to trap him. And he perfectly evades it. And then we find ourselves in this passage. And so we're almost looking, if we've been paying attention to the narrative, we're almost looking for the third question. This guy's coming here. He's obviously got an ulterior motive. He's coming to trap Jesus. Uh, chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes, the scribes, Every single time Mark mentions a scribe, it's in a negative light. And it's not an accidental negative light. He makes it clear that this guy has an ulterior motive. In fact, it's not just Mark. It's all of the gospel writers. Whenever the scribes come on the scene, it's like you're watching a Batman movie and the Joker comes on the scene. You don't know what he's about to do, but you're pretty sure he's not there to plant a rose guard, okay? So this very negative character shows up in a series of very negative questions, but Mark doesn't say a single negative thing about him. We get the picture that this is an honest guy who's come to ask an honest question. Look at the text. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. That's Jesus and these political parties. And seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the most Important of all. This guy's probably not a believer. 
In fact, the text makes clear later on that he's not a believer. He doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But what he does believe is that Jesus Christ is able to give good answers to impossible questions. He is a really good question answer, and this guy has a really tough question that he's been wrestling with. And so he sees Jesus giving these wonderful answers, and he thinks to himself, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ask Jesus my question. Incidentally, some of you may be here exploring the Christian faith this morning. Maybe you don't quite believe Jesus is the Messiah just yet. And let me encourage you, let me commend you for being here. I think you can ask Jesus good questions, and you can ask the Bible good questions, and you can get good answers. Let me encourage you also to ask fundamental questions, ask foundation questions. Don't get caught up in the periphery. That's not what Jesus is, that's not what this guy is doing. He's asking a foundational to the faith kind of question. One of those things that if you don't get it right, it doesn't matter what else you get right, it's going to be hard to pull off. And as I was preparing for this message, uh, I looked up gun laws in the United States. Uh, there are over 20,000 laws that regulate the ownership, possession, and the use of guns in the United States. Now, I've got kids, and I enjoy using guns, and so I'm teaching them how to use guns. Now, when I'm teaching them how to use guns, do you think I'm trying to get into their little heads 20,000 laws? No, of course not. I'm trying to tell them what's the most important, and in my house, that means keep the gun pointed in a safe direction. Keep it pointed in a safe direction. Now, are there other rules? Yeah, there are a lot of other rules, and some of them are really important rules. But in my opinion, the foundational rule is to keep it pointed in a safe direction. If you can get that rule right, you can make a mistake on some of the other rules, and things will be okay. If you get that rule wrong, it's hard to use a gun and not create a tragedy. That's the foundational question that this guy is asking is, Jesus, what is the most important of all of the commandments? And you might be thinking, since this is a Jewish guy, he's obviously asking about the Ten Commandments. And so there's Ten Commandments. Jesus, of the Ten, which one is the most important? That's not what he's asking. The Jews in Jesus' day uh, had broken the Old Testament down into all of its commandments. And they had come up with slightly more than 600 commandments. And so this guy, who's an expert in religious law, is wrestling with 600 commandments. And he's coming to Jesus and saying, look, we got 600 of these things. And we all agree, some of them are a little bit more important than other ones. But can you help me figure out which one is the most important? And that's the question that he poses to Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is a foundational question for us as people of God. And Jesus' response. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let me make a couple of observations here. First, this is a commandment. Okay, let's not pass over the most obvious thing about this, and that is that it's a commandment, which implies that there's something to be done, and there's a choice to be made. There's something to be done, and there's a choice to be made. The second thing is, all of this stuff that he's talking about, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, where is all that stuff? That's all stuff that's on the inside. That's not external stuff. He's not asking you to do something. He's asking you to be someone. And what he's saying is, I want you to be the kind of person that loves me, that loves God with everything, 100% of your being. Now, I appreciate it when people put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Do y'all understand that term? No, uh, you may, it may, when you make life easy, okay? And so, I've I got to be honest, when I read a passage like this, and I say, oh, okay, i got to love God with everything that I am, that makes sense. That sounds very Christian. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to love God with everything that I've got? Because if I want to choose to do that, I'm going to need some guidance. And so as I looked at this passage, one of the discoveries that I made was that you can almost take out the word love and replace it with the word commitment. You see, when you love something, you're committed to it. You're in a marriage relationship. You're committed to your spouse. We probably have in our presence this morning some graduates of Texas A&M. It never fails. It never fails. I'm amazed at the loyalty that A&M grads have. You might say they love their school. You might say that they are committed to their school. Now, here's the thing about it. When you love something, and when you're committed to it, it gets you on the inside. It affects part of who you are on the inside, and you almost don't need a rule book. You see, when you love something, when you're committed to that thing, when you love and, and, and are committed to Texas A&M, you don't need a little rule book in your back pocket for when you go shopping that says you ought not be buying orange stuff with longhorn steers on it. Right? Because you're committed to that institution. Now let me paint a tragic picture for you. Just hypothetically speaking, suppose one of these A&M grads their high school senior son comes to him and says, Dad, I want to go orange. I want to go orange. I'm just committed to orange, okay? And Armando's over here laughing, and I know why he's laughing. He's going to try to talk him out of it. You're going to try to talk him out of it, right? Because you love your school and you want him to go to it. But if the kid's just like he's obstinate, no, I'm going orange and that's all there is to it. You might have a little fun with this, and you might poke, poke some fun at him, but you're not going to disown your kid. Why? You're more committed to your kid than you are to your school. 
And what God is saying when he says, I want you to love me with everything that you've got. I want you to be committed to me with everything that you've got. He's saying, I want to occupy that place in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, with all of your being, that there is nothing that usurps it. That's what God means when he says, I want you to love me with everything that you got. And oddly enough, Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop with just saying, look, what's the most important thing? What's the most fundamental, foundational thing to uh, living the Christian life? Love God, period. That's not what he does. He continues. Look at verse 30. I'm sorry, 31. And the second is this. Now, if you're the scribe, you're thinking, wait a minute. I just asked for one. I didn't, I, why are you giving me two? I just asked for one. Let me point it out to you. Uh, sometimes when we use the word second, we're talking about second in importance. This is the most important. This is the second most importance. But sometimes when we use the word second, we're just talking about second in a series of equally important things. And that's the way Jesus is using the term here. It's like he's saying, look, I'm showing you two sides of the same coin. The first side is that you love God with everything that you've got. You flip that coin over, and it's going to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate two sides of a coin, and you can't separate these two commandments. They're the same thing. question that we ought to be asking at this point is, okay, what's my neighbor? That'd be a good question to be asking at this point. The word translated neighbor simply means someone that you're close to. So if you're married, that would mean your spouse. Uh, if you're in a family, that would mean your mom, your dad, your, your parents, uh, kids. But it also means people that you're close to in the workplace. People that you're close to uh, when you're playing, your kid's baseball coach, your, your kid's soccer coach, uh, the, the people that you play golf with, the people that you hunt and fish with, the people that you play in the band with. These are people that are close. You want a down, uh, kind of a, a rough and dirty definition of what it means to be a neighbor? A neighbor is anyone who can get under your skin. That's what it means to be a neighbor. You're close enough to that person and they're close enough to you that you know how to get under their skin and they know how to get under your skin. So the Starbucks barista, probably not, although it's arguable at times. But the people that you work with, they know how to let you down. You know them well enough, they know you well enough how to, to know how to let you down. They know how to get under your skin. And the reality is, you're a mess. And I'm a mess. And your neighbors are a mess. And it's just a matter of time until your neighbor offends you. It's just a matter of time until your neighbor says something, does something, is something that just gets under your skin. And that's when this commandment kicks in. You're to love them the way you yourself would want to be loved. 
Now, what's it, how do you love yourself? Yeah, yeah, you take care of yourself. You take a great answer. You take care of yourself. You accept yourself. You, you have standards for yourself that we all violate our own standards. You say, I'm not going to eat that, but then you eat it. You say, I'm going to work out, but then you forget to work out. Uh, and, and if you're a mentally healthy person, at the end of the day, you don't go jump off a cliff because you didn't keep the standards that you set for yourself. You have grace on yourself. You have mercy on yourself. You give yourself a second, third, fourth, 379th chance. Because it's you. And you care for you. And Jesus is inviting us. He's commanding us to love our neighbor the way that we would love ourselves. Let me, let me paint a picture for you if you're having a hard time understanding this. Imagine for a moment that you've been invited to an art studio. And this is the studio of a master. I mean, this guy is more masterful than Leonardo da Vinci. And you pick up a paintbrush and you're looking at one of his masterpieces and you think, let me try. And you put a little paint on it and you, uh, it's, you're not three minutes into it and you realize, oh my gosh, I have made a mess. I mean, it's not a small mess either. You have destroyed the masterpiece. And you got a problem here. Because that was the masterpiece. It's not like there was another one over here that you could just put in its place. That was the masterpiece and you destroyed it. And secondly, you simply do not have the requisite talent to fix the mistake that you made. It's completely out of your hands. And then you see the master walking into the studio. How do you want to be treated at that moment. You see, most of us have a guilt complex. Most of us say, well, what I deserve to, what, what I, what I deserve to have happen to me is uh, he needs to kick me out of the studio. And that's true, he does. But I didn't ask you what you deserve. I'm asking you, what do you want in that moment? What would be your desire that would be beyond your wildest dreams? How do you want the master to, to, to treat you in that situation? Because let me tell you, when your heavenly Father walked into your life, into the mess that you had made, what He did is He walked up to you, He put His arm around you, looked at you, and said, child, I love you. And he picked up a paintbrush. He smoothed a little here. He added a little texture here, a little more color here, a little less color there. And before your very eyes, another masterpiece emerged from your mess. God's asked you to be 100% committed to him. You can't be 100% committed to him and not be committed to the things that he's about. And what he's about is taking our messes and turning them into masterpieces. He's not about giving you what you deserve. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He doesn't give me what I deserve. We deserve to be thrown out of the art studio, but instead, 
He fixes us and he gives us, an art, he gives us a paintbrush and says, go, paint. This is amazing. I'm friends with Chris Carroll. I love Chris Carroll. I'm committed to Chris Carroll. How foolish would it be for me to say that I love and am committed to Chris Carroll, but I don't care about his wife, and I don't care about his kids? That would be stupid. That would be ridiculous. And it's foolish and it's ridiculous of us to try to say that we love God. But we're, we really don't care about what's going on with our neighbor. We really don't care about what's going on with the people that are close to us. They need to get what they deserve. This is the same commandment. If I leave you with nothing else today, I want to leave you with the way that God loves you is simply the way that He wants you to love other people. He's had mercy on you. He's had grace with you. He's given you a second, third, 300 chance. And he wants you as his authorized representative to love others in that way. He's not talking about just loving people who haven't offended you because you've offended God. That's why he's using the term neighbor. He wants you to love people who deserve to not be loved by you. How do you go about doing this? First, let me suggest that the application for this passage is that we make love a choice. How do we make love a choice? Well, first, we've got to recognize what love is. First, we've got to recognize that love is foundational. Uh, look at the scribe's response to Jesus. I, I don't think this is going to show up on the screen, but look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, is to, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices. They were in the Jewish temple at this time. The sacrifices were fundamental to the Jewish faith. And what Jesus is saying is, love is so much more fundamental. If you get love right, you can mess up over here and it won't matter that much. If you get love wrong and you get all of the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices right, it's all just hogwash. So the first thing that we need to recognize is that love is a fundamental. And as is always the case with fundamentals, you have to keep coming back to them. You know, you, you, fundamentally, you swing the baseball bat the right way. Or you don't, and you strike out. And when you strike out, you put the baseball bat down, you walk out of the baseball diamond, and you never play baseball again. No, that's not what we do. You strike out, you try again. You might try to apply this passage this week. It may blow up in your face. In fact, it probably will for some of us. It's blown up in my face this week as I've tried to apply it. The reality is, the way that a fundamental works is you have to keep coming back to it. So let me start off by reminding you that we're talking about a fundamental here. The first way that you can apply this passage is to make love a choice by prioritizing time with God. God wants you to choose 
to make Him a priority. Now, for some of us, we're doing really good with this. And if you're doing really good with this this morning, let this message come across to you as an encouragement. It's a pat on the back. It's an attaboy. It's let me say you're doing a great job. But for some of us, maybe not so much. Now, nobody woke up and said, you know what, I don't want to be committed to God anymore. That's never the way that it happens. You wake up, and then you got kids to deal with, or you got a spouse to deal with, and then you got to go to work, and then, then there's this new relationship, or there's this relationship that just ended, or there, there's, you know, life just gets full of stuff. And the next thing you know, you're waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning, working hard all day at work, and taking kids to baseball games, and you never realized how uh, busy life with grandkids would be, and then all of a sudden, you get to the end of the day, it's 10 o'clock, you're exhausted, and you're going to bed. And you've not spent much time praying or in the Scriptures. Let me encourage you to make this a priority. Real simple. For five days, that's all I'm asking you to commit to, is just for five days, commit to spending five minutes in prayer and five minutes in Scripture. Spend five minutes praying and five minutes reading something somewhere in the Bible. And if, you, if you're already doing better than that, keep doing better than that. But if you're not, let me try, challenge you to give it a shot for just five days. And at the end of five days, if it's working for you, Keep doing it. And if it's not, find something different. The second way is, remember, this is a choice. So ask, make love a choice by asking your neighbor. And so that might be your spouse. That might be someone that you work with. That might be one of your kids. How can I help you today? Now let me give you some ground rules for this because there's some husbands and there's some wives that are elbowing each other right now. And they're thinking, oh, I'm going to get that, that whole addict cleaned out. In the spirit of experimentation, let's keep this limited to 15 minutes a day. So if by chance your spouse or your, or your kid or your parent comes up to you and says, how can I help you today? Give them something to do that's only 15 minutes. Because if you give them too much, you might scare them away and they'll never try it again. Okay? Uh, Keep it short, but try this. Try this at home. Pick somebody to ask them five times this week, how can I help you? Some of you don't need to ask. Some of you already know exactly what you need to do, and you need to go home and do that. And here's the thing. Some of the people that you're going to do this for, they don't deserve it. They actually deserve you to say, you get what you deserve. But that's not the way God loved you. And God's inviting us to be gracious and merciful in our own expressions of love. That's part of what it means to be the church. I hope as Chris is working his way through the book of Acts that that's one of the things that's emerging. One of the most amazing and profound aspects of the work of God in our life is that He chooses to use people like you and me to be His authorized representatives, to be His carriers of love to the world. And if we insist on giving people what they deserve, we're not loving people the way that God chose to love us. 
Because he chose to love you as a mess. And he's invited you to love others who are messes. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the honest spirit of this scribe who was just really struggling with what is the most important thing. I'm grateful that you have given him an answer that is just as applicable to him 2,000 years ago as it was to us today. Lord, this is not an easy thing to do. Fundamentals are always hard in a sense. Whether we're swinging a baseball bat, swinging a golf club, baking a cake, or whatever it is we're trying to do, we oftentimes take our eyes off the fundamentals. And we always pay for it. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would empower us this week to first and foremost prioritize our relationship with you. I pray that every person in this audience would be led by you, not as rule keepers, but simply as an act of love to spend a little time in prayer and to spend a little time studying your word. And I pray that you would honor that. And Father, I pray that you would honor our efforts to try to love people in our lives who don't deserve to be loved. We're so very grateful that you chose to love us when we didn't deserve to be loved. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.